Hello, and welcome to episode four of Around the Jewish World with Tom Price. Before we get into the substance of episode four, which will deal with the southern part of Spain called Andalusia, there is an omission that I made in the last episode on Sarajevo that must be eradicated. So I have to tell you one brief story before we leave the Balkans for a period, and that has to do with the fact that in Sarajevo there is a separate Purim called the Purim of Sarajevo and a separate Megillah in addition to Megillat Esther that the rest of us read on this holiday. There is the Megillat Sarajevo. Now what does this refer to? It refers to the fact that In the year 1819, the Ottoman governor of the province of which Sarajevo was the capital was a man named Mehmet Rushdi Pasha. And the chief rabbi of Sarajevo at that time was a great rabbi named Moshe Danon. So in the Hebrew month of Sivan, in the year 1819, the governor, Mehmet Rushdi Pasha, ordered that Rabbi Danon, the chief rabbi, and 12 other well-known leaders of the Jewish community be imprisoned. And he basically threatened the local Jewish community that if they didn't pay a huge ransom, all these men would be killed and the Jewish community would be expelled. Well, obviously they wanted to avoid that, but so too did their Muslim neighbors. So 3,000 Muslim notables, community leaders, stormed the prison, according to one version, and released the hostages. At the same time, they sent a delegation with a petition to the Ottoman Sultan in Istanbul to have this governor removed and to erase all of his decrees. Now, other versions of this story have it that the Muslim notables paid the ransom and the Jewish leaders were released peacefully, but they still went to Istanbul and eventually got this Rushdi Pasha removed. The probably most revealing thing about this story is that on the 200th anniversary, which was in 2019, just one year ago, On the 20th of Sivan, the Grand Mufti of Sarajevo, the great leader of the Islamic community there, read a declaration that included these words. Amid the ever-rising evils of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, we are renewing our pledge that we will be good neighbors who will watch over each other as we did in the past. Close quotes. So this Sarajevo Purim has a different Haman, a different Ahasuerus, and a different Esther, but it's a classic sterling example of the good relations between Muslims and Jews that have characterized the entire history of Sarajevo, up to and including the horrible wars of the 1990s. So I decided to move very far west of the Balkans to the country from which many Balkan Jews came originally to the Balkans when the Balkans were part of the Ottoman Empire. And that country, of course, is Spain. Now, one of the reasons I decided to leave the Balkans, at least temporarily, is that many people claim that Balkan history is much too complicated. There's too many changes of names. The borders change too often. There's too many different languages, etc., etc. 
And even some of my friends living in the Balkans always claim that the Balkans are too complicated for anyone outside the Balkans to understand. Well, it would be a mistake to think that Spain is a whole lot simpler than the Balkans. Uh, Historically, at least, it's possibly even more complicated. And in order for us to focus on some of the leading lights of the Jewish community of Spain, we have to follow three separate historic tracks till we come to the point where we meet this remarkable confluence of Muslims, Christians, and Jews in the city that we call Cordoba, and which was described in the 10th century by a German nun working in a convent as the ornament of the world. Now, what did she mean by this? In part, she meant that the bright lights of the world, of which the capital was Cordoba, illuminated the rest of the universe, and in some ways transcended differences of religion, language, etc., to produce a hybrid, the likes of which were never seen before in the world and probably never will be seen again. What makes Cordoba so special that it earned the nickname of Ornament of the World? Well, just to give you one small idea in terms of quantitative data, which I use very rarely, in the year 800, which is the year Charlemagne was crowned as the Holy Roman Emperor in Rome, Cordoba had 200,000 people. In the year 1,000, 200 years later, its population had doubled to 400,000. Now, those numbers might not sound huge in today's world, but let's look at the same year, 1,000 of the Common Era, at Paris and London, which we think of as the great metropolises of Europe. Paris in the year 1,000 had 20,000 people. By 1,300, its population had grown to 275,000. London, in the year 1000, only had 18,000 people. 300 years later, that number was 45,000. But in that year of 1000, when Paris had 20,000 people and London had 18,000, Cordoba had 400,000, and it had doubled in size very quickly. Now, what does it take for a city to double in, in size, especially in the late well, early Middle Ages or late Dark Ages, depending on how you categorize different eras. But this was long before the Crusades, long before the Renaissance. And yet, Cordoba was a city renowned for its literature, its poetry, its scholarship, and its statesmanship. And it had been so since Roman times, actually. Cordoba was conquered by the Romans in the year... 169 of the Common Era, and there was a Roman forum known to have existed in the city by 113. And at the time of Julius Caesar, Cordoba was the capital of the Roman province of Hispania. You might recognize it as a close predecessor of Espana, the Spanish word for Spain. The great Roman philosopher Seneca the Younger, his father, the great orator Seneca the Elder, and his nephew, the great poet Lucan, all hailed from Roman Cordoba. Cordoba was already, at the beginning of the Christian era, a city known for philosophy, culture, great lights, and known to cultivate creativity. The Roman Empire was gradually conquered, as I've mentioned before, 
by different groups of Germans, Slavs, tribes who were collectively viewed by the Romans as barbarians, and the ones who established multiple kingdoms in Spain were the Visigoths. The Visigoths were practitioners of a form of Christianity known as the Arian heresy, a heresy that had caused major wars between Christians in the early centuries of Christian history. Once the Visigoths settled in Spain, they had to deal with the older population that was Romanized and therefore Roman Catholic, and eventually they converted to Catholicism. Most of that process was complete by the time of the Muslim conquest in the year 711. Now, who were the Muslims who came to Spain, and why did they go so far away from their homelands? Well, the first century of Islamic history is full of battles, bloodshed, assassinations, civil wars, and doctrinal disputes. When Muhammad died, there was no succession mechanism set up in advance. So a council of learned men got together and elected the caliph, who was so-called the replacement for the messenger of God. There were four caliphs in very short succession. Uh, Insurance companies wouldn't issue life insurance policies for any of these guys because, generally speaking, by the time they became caliph, their life expectancy was reduced to five or ten years. And within less than 30 years, the Islamic world went through four caliphs, and the fourth was a grandson of Muhammad's named Ali. Ali's election was not accepted as legitimate across the Islamic world. There was a war about this. The troops who defeated Ali's supporters were led by a man named Wawiyah, who was the governor of the province of Syria and lived in Damascus. Wawiyah then founded the first actual dynasty of caliphs, where the position became hereditary, in the year 661. Ali's followers were almost all massacred, with the exception of one sickly, small grandson of Ali. But those who support Ali and who believe the line of the caliphate runs through his descendants are referred to as the Shi'at ul-Ali, which means the party of Ali. But in modern parlance, we refer to those people as the Shiites. So that's when the Shia-Sunni split began, and it would only be magnified over the coming centuries for many different reasons. In any case, the caliphate was now firmly established in Damascus under Muawiyah and his sons and grandsons, etc., etc., until approximately 750, when there was a major uprising led by a former slave named Al-Abbas. And Al-Abbas both created a new dynasty called the Abbasids and moved the capital further east, away from the Mediterranean world, into what is today Baghdad, in the middle of modern Iraq. So, on the one hand, he moved the capital further away from the western reaches of the empire, which already included Morocco and Spain. On the other hand, he ushered in an era of prosperity and culture, which some regard as the highest form of Islamic art, politics, religion, etc., etc., the sort of golden age from roughly speaking 750 to 950. But one of Moawiyah's grandsons, a man named 
Abdurrahman trekked pretty much alone all the way to Cordoba, which had been established already as the provincial capital of Al-Andalus, which is what the Arabs referred to Spain as. It was subordinate to the caliphate in Damascus, but it had already a large population from Roman times of both Christians and Jews. When Abdurrahman himself arrived there years later in 756, he eventually declared Cordoba as the capital of the independent emirate of the Umayyads and later the caliphate of Al-Andalus. One of the physical manifestations of this is that the Muslims and the Christians basically shared a very large church, the Church of St. Vincent, which was eventually transformed into the Great Cordoba Mosque on the exact same spot. The construction of this great mosque, which is really breathtaking, went on for about two centuries. And finally, in 766, this new political entity called the Caliphate of Cordoba attracted more and more people to it as traders, whatever. And it was located on a river called the Guadalquivir, where it still is located. And those of you who know a little bit of Arabic can easily understand how the Spanish heard something called Wadi al-Kabir and changed that to the Spanish form of Guadalquivir. Anyway, the, the Great Wadi became this great river in southwestern Spain. Now, we know that the first two or three centuries of Islamic rule in Cordoba fostered an incredible civilization that blinded the eyes of everyone who saw it. Not only was it materially rich and architecturally beautiful, but it produced poets, physicians, philosophers, statesmen of all three religions, Christians, Jews, and Muslim, who clearly interacted with each other and cross-pollinated. And there was a a degree of intellectual ferment that was unparalleled. Some of the Hebrew names of great men who lived in these centuries in Cordoba include Chastai ibn Shaprut, Shmuel ibn Agrella, Maimonides, and dozens of others. And some of the non-Jewish names are Avicenna and Averos. These people lived in a polity that was called Al-Andalus by the Arabs, Andalusia by the Latin speakers who were descended from the old Romans, and Sfarad by the Jews, which is actually the name of Spain today. Although Spain is a much more complex entity than Al-Andalus or Andalusia were. The interesting thing about Cordoba is that, of course, like all old Jewish settlements in Spain, it had a Jewish quarter called La Juderia. And much of that quarter is intact today, filled with restaurants, bars, old family homes that have been converted to lovely hotels, and one remarkable museum called the Casa Sfarad, the House of Sfarad. This is one of the few museums in Spain that's not sponsored by the state. It's a privately held museum, 
so it keeps different hours. It has different days of opening and closure. It's fairly small. Rumor has it that it's housed in an old synagogue. It's certainly directly across the street from an old synagogue which has been under restoration for the past decade with funds from the the European Commission in Brussels. This museum has a number of superbly trained multilingual guides. And we were lucky enough to have a guide who spoke fluent French, Spanish, and Hebrew, and of course English. And at the end of his tour, he sang a Sephardic or possibly a Ladino version of a psalm from the Book of Psalms. Some of you listeners might know this word, these words, I lift my eyes unto the mountains from where my help will come. The guy sang it in such a haunting tune in this old space that everybody in the room was moved to tears. And afterwards, I asked the guy, like, how do you know all this Hebrew? Are you Jewish? He said, no, actually, not as far as I know. My family was from Majorca. I moved from Majorca to Cordoba when I was six years old. But most Spaniards in this part of the country, if you scratch deeply enough, you'll find that they're one quarter or one eighth or one sixteenth Jewish. We all have some Jewish blood. We all have some Muslim blood. We all have some Roman blood. We're all both Jews and non-Jews together. And that was, for me, a terrific summary of what Cordoba has become. Uh, There is an insignificantly large Jewish community in the present day. Cordoba has shrunk. It's no longer the giant city or the ornament of the world that it once was. But there are two or three nearby cities with much larger, more dynamic Jewish communities, such as Sevilla, Malaga, and Granada, which I hope to talk with you about during our next episode. Looking forward to it.